Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. I am really thankful to get to open up God's Word with you all here in just a minute. A few things I want to keep you updated as we are in some unprecedented days. We are working on a Good Friday gathering as well as uh, Easter plans, so please stay tuned. We will share those with you soon. And as a reminder, during these stay-at-home orders and other restrictions that remain upon us, more needs are going to arise, and we're in this together. The best way that you can share with us how to help carry those burdens is to talk with your small group um, to start there, but also by hopping onto our website and filling out uh, the COVID-19 assistance request form, whether it's financial, if you need help with some food through the week or the month, or if there are childcare needs, what, whatever it is, we'd love to know how we can be in this with you. And in fact, just this past week, we had a great privilege of supporting a few families who had some uh, technology needs and were able to buy a few computers for some Monroe families. And this next week, we are going to be uh, kind of helping them get logged in and uh, to be able to use those new devices so they can do online learning with their kids during this time away from school. And so thank you, because that comes from your generosity and giving as a church family. Uh, you have been a blessing, therefore we get to continue to be a blessing. Um, as a reminder, also, let's continue to submit to our civil leaders and medical professionals as they request and have uh, commanded even these stay-at-home uh, orders. And so please continue to practice those social distancing um, requests and others of staying home and being mindful uh, of all of those things. This is a way that we love our neighbors well during this time. Uh, Today, we will be concluding our study in Lamentations, so please meet me in Lamentations chapter 5. If you get to the middle of your Bible, about the Psalms, move over to the right to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and if you get to Ezekiel, go back to the left. This book uh, has been one long poetic battle, if you will, with consequence. Jerusalem has persisted in sin for generations, and now they're suffering the consequences of their sin. The first poem, if you can, if you can go back there in Lamentations 1, is one of observation in which the poet gives voice to the agony of the city. Then the narrator seems to become this advocate or teacher of the city, pleading with God in, in the second poem to relent and eventually calling the city to cry out in desperation to God. By the third poem, we uh, hear a third voice, a a third person is speaking, an individual known as a strong man is under siege underneath the wrath of God. And in the fourth poem, the uh, primary speaker reemerges again as a distant narrator or observer. The the advocacy is gone. The the hope, albeit that was minimal in chapter three, is now dissipated. The passion is snuffed out. See, though each of these voices lends a unique glimpse into suffering, what it is to cry out to God, which then gives language to our suffering or our pain, and even leaning into the discomfort of the things that come from uh, consequence, the loudest voice of all of these voices is the silence of God. His words have been quoted one time. Otherwise, his voice is absent. 
The absence of God's voice is found throughout the Bible. Job experienced this divine quiet. He said, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Job 20 verse 30. And David, King David felt the cosmic silence as well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says in Psalm 22, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, I mean, even though we we read this, we know God speaks, right? Speaking is actually fundamental to his character. This is what makes his silence so deafening to us. See, not only does the Bible begin with God speaking and creating everything by his voice, but Jesus Christ in John 1.14 is known as the word made flesh. And what more is the Bible but God's word? See, the silence of God is not merely a difficult thing for us to understand, but an experience which seems in direct contradiction with the fabric of his nature. Considering the whole of scripture, when we look at the whole thing and the theme of God's silence, when we consider that whole, writer John Bloom summarizes it well. He says, God's silence is how it feels. It's not how it is. God's silence is how it feels, but it's not how it is. See, what we consider silence is less about the habit and character of God than it is about something else. Because God is always speaking. We're told in Exodus that God spoke and guided his people through a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. We're told in Romans 1 that all of creation speaks to us of the eternal power and divine nature of God. We're told in Hebrews that through the prophets, though the prophets used to speak and give witness to God's voice, God now speaks and has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, but it's in our sin and our shame in the middle of consequence God feels silent. Remember, Lamentations is poetry. Poetry is often not necessarily how or what something is, but rather how something feels. And our feelings are only a small indication of reality. God is always speaking. And so, in silence, my brothers and sisters, what is God saying to his people? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are coming to you now, scattered across this city, in our homes, connected digitally, connected perhaps visually visually and audibly, but not physically and literally. And so, Father, though we gather in such a unique way as your church right now, we thank you that it is not technology that holds us together, but it is your word. We thank you that it is not video conferencing that brings us unity, but it is your presence and your spirit. And so we ask that by your word and by your spirit, would you unite us as a people today? Would you reveal sin? Would we confess your lordship and the ways in which we fall short? Would you help us even in all of this to become more the people you're calling us to be for such a time as this? Father, help me. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. 
I pray that as your word is proclaimed over your people, that your word would do what only your word can do. Illuminate the dark recesses of our hearts, revealing sin and shame and brokenness and unhealth. I pray even today, Father, in this moment, that wounds and pain and sin that has for decades been ignored and unresolved, would you bring into the light so that we might walk in fellowship with you and one another? Father, would you do the miraculous today that we would not just have good notes to live by tomorrow, but the very composition of our hearts would be transformed by the reading and the preaching of your word, by the consideration of your timeless truth. So help us in this, God. If that happens, it's a miracle because only you can do it. So we trust you and we trust you in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, the fifth and final poem begins with a threefold request. Look at Lamentations 5 verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Remember, look, see. This is a plea. It's a cry. It stands alone almost as an introduction or a title of the poem, of this last poem, the fifth poem in Lamentations. One scholar calls this particular plea the most insistent prayer found in the Old Testament. It's an imperative plea. It is a plea or a cry that, that ultimately begins with this imperative, remember, and it's coupled with two more imperatives, a command to look and to see. Each word is a wave crashing against the shore of God's power and sovereignty, begging him for action, for mindfulness and attention. Memory has been a strong theme in Lamentations. Both God's and the people's recollections and, and memories have been discussed, Lamentations 1 and Lamentations 2 and 3. The city's request at the outset of the first poem is not that God would stop forgetting, though, as if, as if some bit of information or knowledge is lost on him that the people want him to bring back to mind. After all, he caused all these circumstances to come about. He knows what's going on. He knows everything. Rather, the command then to remember is a request that he would have an understanding of the implications, the pain of their situation, their circumstance, and then that he would do something to change their circumstance. You see, in the Bible, remembering, particularly asking God to remember, is not just about knowing, but about doing. It's not just to know, it's to do. That's what the psalmists were asking in Psalm 74 and 89. First in 74, remember your congregation, the psalmist uh, pleads, which you have purchased of old. And then in 89, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face or hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. Similarly, these are not questions about God's memory. They are not pleads for God to recall bits of facts and knowledge of his people. This is a call for his compassion and action. To remember is not just to know, but to do. 
See, God remembered Noah in Genesis 8 and brought him on dry land. God remembered Abraham in Genesis 19 and protected him. God remembered Rachel in Genesis 30 and gave her life in her womb. God remembered Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and gave her her son, the prophet Samuel. This is just to name a few places in the Bible where God remembers, but not just about information, not just acknowledging some bit of knowledge, but ultimately he is led to action through his remembrance. And so the city doesn't just say, remember, but look again at verse one, remember and look and see our disgrace. Remember moves to two more imperatives, look and see. To remember is not just to know, but to do. Action is requested even demanded out of desperation. This is not the first time one of the poets or one of the speakers in Lamentations has requested this special kind of remembering that results in looking and seeing in action. Lamentations 1 verse 11, the poet pleads with God on behalf of the people, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. In fact, When it doesn't seem that God will respond, the speaker actually begins to turn to the people around him. Is it nothing, verse 12 says, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which has brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. See, when the city doesn't get the attention of God, the city settles for the attention of anyone who will pay her attention. There's something about being seen, isn't there? There's something about the city requesting simply to be known, to be seen, to be looked at in her disgrace that is deeply human. A simple research project a couple of years ago uh, was done by researchers Amir Kamenika and Drazen Prelik. They gave three groups the same task. When those tasks were completed, their work was reviewed right in front of them. Can you imagine that? The grading happening right before your very eyes. Anyway, the experiments, the experimenters rather, visually acknowledged the first group. In other words, they looked at them in the eye as they were grading their work or reviewing their work. The second group was reviewed, but no eye contact was made. The third group was not only ignored, but their work was shredded right in front of them. (laughs) They found very little difference, the researchers did, between the the second two groups, the second and the third, rather, group. But the acknowledged group went on to accomplish over a third more work than the other two groups. What the researchers concluded, and perhaps what is intuitive to us, being seen is transformative. Being seen instills worth and encouragement and motivation. It makes us feel human. We may know this now more than ever through stay-at-home orders. We may feel or literally be completely unseen. In fact, save for a, a perhaps quick exercise or glance at a neighbor, you may feel completely invisible right now. I can't tell you how lifted my family and I were when just today, going for a walk, we made eye contact with another member of our church and just got to wave, of course, from exactly six feet away. Nevertheless, there was something about that visible contact. This has a deep effect on us. 
Surely we understand from a simply physical consideration what the city means as they cry out to God. But notice it's deeper still. It's not just a physical sight. What specifically the city is asking for when they ask to be looked at or seen, they ask God to look, to see, to remember her disgrace. In chapter one, it was that she was despised and in immense sorrow. This is not just a physical need. This is deeply spiritual. Her sin and the consequence of her sin have overwhelmed her and transformed the composition of her self-concept. She is ruined. And yet somehow in the midst of her peril, she believes that the attention of God will restore her. What the city is longing for is not that God would remember forgotten information, nor that his eyes would simply lock on hers. Jerusalem desires for Yahweh to to take action, to release her from the bondage of her sin and shame. Remember, look, see, help me, she cries. To remember is not just to know, it's to do. From verses 2 through 18, the city describes her disgrace in great detail. She, she kind of lists her shame. In essence, she explains what she wants God to remember, to look at, and to see. And by the end of it, she will make her final plead about exactly what she wants the Lord to do. Look at verses 2 and 3. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We, pay, we must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get, we, we get must be bought. We're given a, a whole picture of life. The lament, though, moves from this big to small, from national inheritance to family It's about identity. See, land was central to the identity of God's people. Ever since Moses led Israel from the promised land out of Egyptian captivity, Israel was known by their land. In fact, any national identity to this day is in part understood by way of land or geography, isn't it? And in in this case, the city is crying out to God because their land, their inheritance was no more. In fact, because of the consequence of their sin, their land was given away to foreigners. Their identity was not just lost, it was stolen. Not only so, but they were orphans. The family was broken apart. Of course, this is how we know ourselves, know each other, how we're known to this day. It's how we identify perhaps most fundamentally within the world with and by our family. And so what the city is saying is that the very fabric by which they understood themselves and by which they felt known by the world the way they related to the world was unraveling underneath the weight of God's wrath. And so they say, Lord, look, remember, see. Notice from the identity of God's people, we move to their basic survival, verse three and following. We must pay for water. We drink the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread in the middle of famine. Water is a most precious commodity. The price of which would have been extraordinary. Not only water, but wood would have been a hot commodity as well. No pun intended. Forgive me for that. Because at night, that's how you would keep warm. And and that's how you cook your meals. 
And even if they had money for drinking water and for cooking, they couldn't. Did, did you hear there's people who are pursuing them? People are coming after them. They couldn't sleep. This is all a result of a last-ditch effort, the sinful attempt that the people of God made to save themselves through Egypt and Assyria. They experience disgrace because their identity is lost. They experience disgrace because they are unable to physically survive. And so they survive. So they say, God, remember, look, see. And now in verse seven, from identity and survival, they move to blame. Look at verse seven. Our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. Remember their consequence is a result of generations, centuries of sin and idolatry. Autonomy is a presumption of the modern world. We naturally consider ourselves as disconnected from others, especially when we speak about morality or when we speak about the law. We shouldn't be held accountable for the sins of others, right? I mean, that just seems basic. So we can identify with the lament of verse seven. It doesn't feel fair to be so bound with those who have gone before us. But isn't it interesting, this kind of injustice or this kind of desire for disconnection comes up now when iniquities and sins show up. We didn't feel that way about inheritance in verse 2, did we? See, by definition, an inheritance is something we received that we didn't personally earn. It is ours by birthright, not morality or effort. Why are we comfortable to receive the reward of previous generations, but not the consequence? Can we choose? Is it that simple? It doesn't seem that we can. It seems they're wrapped up together. This is actually much more intrinsic to the human experience than I think we often realize. See, Jews understand this. As human beings, we are necessarily bound up in one another, in the present through community and across generations as the people of God. Self-described wandering Jew and confused Christian David Brooks, I think beautifully captures this network of humanity and social capital in his book, Second Mountain. He does so with the help of 20th century writer, Jane Jacobs. One day, he writes, in the late 1950s, Jane Jacobs was looking out her second story window out her Greenwich village, at her Greenwich village street below. She noticed a man struggling with a young girl. The thought crossed Jacobs' mind that perhaps she was witnessing a kidnapping. She was preparing to go downstairs to intervene when she noticed that the couple that owned the butcher's shop had emerged from their store. Then the fruit man walked out from behind his stand, as did the locksmith and a few people from the laundry mat. That man did not know, but he was surrounded. Jacobs wrote, A kind of righteous inheritance of life was afforded to this young woman because of the holy action of her community. She would have experienced a severe consequence if her community would have responded with less valor. This woman's life, in the story that Jacob recounts, was completely dependent upon the actions of others. Brooks goes on to explain in his understanding of that story, the dependency and connection we all share regularly, though we overlook it every day. 
See, when we go to the grocery store, for instance, we may think that we are making a completely autonomous decision. Which store we go to, what we select, and the fact that we buy our food with our money, with our credit card. But what about the marketing team that created and designed the campaign which drew you into that store? What about the food manufacturer who made that food? What about the store owner who placed the order with that manufacturer? What about the driver who brought the crates of food to that store? What about the person who put that food on the shelf? What about the company that extended you that line of credit? What about the people who employ you and pay you? We are not autonomous. We are dependent. We are connected. And Jerusalem cries out feeling the weight of this moral connection. Identity, survival, connection, dependency. From here, the city begins to detail more of their peril as it relates to specific individuals within their community. Consider verse 8. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread of the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot. Jerusalem says, as, a, as an oven with burning heat of famine, women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah, princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. Evidence of their suffering is over them and all around them. The people who rule them and the danger that they face in simply trying to get food. As a result of the famine, their skin dries up and is hot, a literal impact, consequence of malnutrition. Women are objectified. Princes are tortured. Elders are disregarded. Young men are mistreated. Boys are forced into labor canvassing the different levels and layers of society, no one is left unaffected by the devastation of the consequence of God's wrath and the people's sin. This has this internal and external effect. And so they cry out, God, remember, look, see us. To remember is not simply to recall information and knowledge, but to do something. Verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. Joy is lost. Dancing stops. Prestige is no more. Hearts are sick. Eyes are blind. The city is ruined and animals run all over it. God, remember, look at us, see us. What's left? What's left in the middle of lament is merely God's silence. He still feels quiet. Have you ever thought about all that God has seen? Think about it. Through uh, the years and generations and eons, he has literally seen it all. 
God's eternal experience, if you will, has a great deal to say about his silence and calm temperament. It reminds me of the time when I was a boy, I was climbing up a chain link fence and at the top of the fence, they, they failed to bend over the pointed tops, which they're supposed to do by the law of all that is good and righteous. They left those things pointed up and I slipped at the top and caught my left hand and almost lost my pinky finger. This happened after a Little League game. We were on that particular property, and so they took me to what we called the snack shack. Um, And I remember hysterically screaming, bleeding everywhere. And they called my mom. They uh, told me she was on the way. And as I waited for my mom, I sort of prepared my expectations for her. But I prepared my for my mother's demeanor and response based on my own demeanor and response. We all do this, I think. See, I was freaking out, so I was expecting, I was waiting for her to be freaking out. I was scared, so I thought she'd be scared. I thought I might die, so I thought she might be worried that I might die. And when my mom got to me, she was calm. I saw her walking up from the parking lot towards me, and she was walking. When she got to me, she smiled and I think said something like, it's going to be okay or something dumb like that. Just kidding, mom. Like, I'm sure it was loving. But it was like, it's going to be okay. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And then she even started making small talk with the other adults there and made even a couple of jokes. I was, I was mortified. I was flabbergasted. How could she be so calm? How could she make, make jokes at a time like this? Well, when I was in a better state of mind, I remembered that my mom had been a mom for a long time, for many years, and she had seen much worse. In fact, she'd been a nurse for over a decade. She knew the drill. And so in the grand scheme of life, what was happening to me was actually not that big of a deal. Not that she didn't love me or care for me, but she knew it was going to be okay. See, her response made no sense when based on my ability and my understanding. But her response made perfect sense based on her ability and her understanding. She eventually drove me to the ER. I got eight stitches and I survived, thanks be to God. She was calm because she knew. I was confused because I didn't know. I was confused because I presumed she only knew as much as me. See, we often don't understand God because we are trying to understand him through our own ability and our own knowledge, not his. We might say his silence then makes no sense if he only knows what we know and he can only do what we can do. His silence is harmful to us if all we lack is information. But if he knows all things and has seen all things, then his silence tells us we don't merely need information. We need something else. And it is his eternality, his eternality, which brings calm in the storm, even the storm of Jerusalem's consequence. See verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. The city moves away from cataloging her lament into a direct confession of the character and nature of God. She attempts to lift herself out of despair through confessing the eternal nature of God. 
This transition is direct and hard. The words, but you, moves the poem sharply away from all that has been said thus far. It's as if to say, all this devastation is true, yet there is hope and truth and trust in God. You see, church, God is eternal. Conceding the eternality of God is more than confessing that he has no end nor a beginning. Rather, as uh, Louis Burkhoff says, the infinity of God is the perfection of God by which he is free from all limitations. And so, he does not just always exist, but he is unbound by time. He does not grow old or weary or tired. He is outside of time. He is not outside in that he is emotionally unaffected or disconnected with what takes place within time. In fact, by his grace, he enters into and interacts with us in time. That he is outside of time is that he sees past, present, and future with equal clarity and focus. As another theologian says, God somehow stands above time and is able to see it all as present in his consciousness. God is eternal. But notice verse 19, God is not just eternal, but God eternally reigns and his throne endures to all generations. God eternally reigns. Specifically, the poet, the city speaks of the eternal kingship and lordship of God. God has not just merely existed for all of time, nor will he merely exist for all of time, but he reigns over it all. He is in control. He is forever powerful. He is sovereign. Are you hearing me, church? Is this getting through to you? He's not merely just there. He's in charge. So even though Jerusalem was supposed supposed to be his earthly habitation, God's throne endures well beyond their demise. And what does a king do? He provides for his people. He goes to war for his people. He protects his people. He judges his people. So, for the city to come underneath the reign of God is for them to submit to his provision, justice, protection, his will, his way, his timing, and his righteousness. God eternally reigns. See, the nature of God is character, is always vital context for his action or inaction, his words or his silence. Understanding what God does or doesn't do requires knowing God. The people are familiar with Yahweh through generations of covenant with him. So the city may question God's anger and his unrelenting wrath, but they are assured by his eternal character, his sovereignty and all sufficiency, his eternality. See, verse 19 shifts the mood of the poem from pure lament to a prayer crying out to God. As one commentator notes, their faith remains evident in the face of overwhelming pressure to discard it. They don't get rid of their faith because God is there and they know him and they're in relationship with him. Don't miss this. It's Jerusalem who remembers something about God as they wait for God to remember them. Jerusalem remembers something about God. 
even as they cry out to God to remember them. Perhaps this is the point. Remembering is more than recalling information. To remember is not just to know, but to do. All of this may be true, and all of this I believe is true. However, this is a poem. Stylistically, a poem is not about theological application. In large measure, it's about communicating emotion. This is a lament. And the emotional experience of God's people is one of isolation, of distance, of of desolation, of disregard, of feeling forsaken. Verse 20, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? See, immediately after this worshipful theological acknowledgement of God's forever rule, there's still lament. There's still emotion. There's still sorrow. There's still sadness. See, we may know who God is. We understand cognitively his character and nature. We can open up his word and see his manifest beauty through his word. But we still feel sad, don't we? We still feel isolated. We still feel forgotten. By this point, the city is not just blaming their ancestors. Look again at verse 16. For we have sinned. They know that they've sinned. They know that they're guilty. They know that they're receiving what they deserve. They, as in much of Lamentations, are very aware that what they are experiencing is a result of their behavior, not just God's. This is consequence for their sin. They are guilty, but they're still crying out. They're crying out, but they do not disagree. They're pleading with God, even commanding God to remember them and have mercy. And to remember is not just to know, but to do this is a familiar feeling in the Bible. Remember again, King David, he lamented in kind in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David was guilty, yet he asked for mercy. David gets silence too, just like Jerusalem in Lamentations. He says, you do not answer. Interestingly, in this whole Psalm of David, as we look at the entirety of it, like in Lamentations 5, as soon as David laments to God about his silence and and wonders why he has been forsaken and, and, and begs him to remember him, He calls upon the eternal nature of God. He calls upon the God who reigns forever. See, in silence, there is something powerful about remembering that God is eternal and that God reigns. And it may not work right away. And and by work, I mean we may not see something turn and change and transform in us. And yet in the middle of our sorrow and sadness, we are to cling to God. Over and over and over again, we cry out to our soul to wait. We cry out to God to save. We cry out to God to remember. There is power in recalling his character and quality when we ask for him to remember us. Perhaps this is 
the point of his silence. He draws us in. Much like Jesus on Resurrection Sunday on the road to Emmaus, if you remember in Luke 24, he doesn't reveal his identity immediately. He's, he's quite quiet about who he is, but he's there. He's present and he walks with them. He draws them out. He asks them questions. He identifies with their sorrow. He identifies with their pain. Jesus connected with his fellow sojourners. If he knows all things and has seen all things, then his silence tells us we don't merely need information from him. We need something else. In Psalm 22, God does not speak nor act. We can only assume and hope that he is listening. In Lamentations 5, God does not speak nor act. We can only assume and hope that he is listening. Yet as we turn the pages of Scripture and arrive in the New Testament, we do receive his response. His audible, boisterous, loud, bold response to his silence. Turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27 verses 45 through 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross cries out and laments to his heavenly father. But he does not just lament and cry out sporadically or randomly. He quotes scripture on the cross. Oh, church, that we would be those kinds of people. That when our back is against the wall, in the worst of circumstances and difficulty, it would be God's word that leaks from our lips. That we would speak God's word in the middle of our pain. See, on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, a passage a passage about not hearing God's voice. Can you imagine that? And in Matthew 27, God doesn't speak nor act either. At least, not maybe how we would expect. Let's think about this. See, in crying out to God, yet not receiving an audible response, Jesus identifies with us. So he, he knows our pain. He knows the pain of the lamenting city. He knows the isolation. He knows the sorrow. He knows the weight of wrath. He knows the agony of facing death. And yet, as the word made flesh, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is God's answer to our cry for help. Jesus is the logic of God in human form. Jesus is the response of God made knowable. Jesus is the voice of God made visible. Jesus is God remembering his people. Jesus does not just know us. He does something on our behalf. To remember is not just to know, but to do. And in Christ, then, God remembers his people because in Christ, we are fully known and fully loved. And this love was demonstrated in Christ's death and resurrection. So behold the wonder of Jesus Christ, eternal Lord who enters into time, invisible God who takes on flesh, Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who willingly dies, forever King who steps down from his throne, immortal God who becomes a man. Therefore, 
as God remembered Noah in Genesis 8.1 and brought him onto dry land, as God remembered Abram in, in Genesis 19 and, brought, and protected him, as God remembered Rachel in Genesis 30 and gave life in her womb, as God remembered Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and gave her her son, the prophet Samuel, as God remembered the covenant in dozens of passages throughout scripture and forgave his people, as in all of these instances, it is on the cross where God eternally remembered you you and me and all of his people for all of time. And he does not simply on the cross say, I know you. On the cross, he says, I love you and I have accomplished this for you. To remember, church, is not just to know, but to do. Behold the wonder of Jesus Christ. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Prince of peace. He is the one who has eternally spoken to us by his death and resurrection. This is why, reconsidering John Bloom's words from earlier, this is why the silence of God is always and only a feeling, not a reality. God has spoken through his son forever. We know this because of Hebrews chapter one. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God is speaking right now through Christ as he rules and reigns from this very second as God and man from the right hand of his heavenly father. God is speaking right this second to you through Christ. God is speaking right this second to me through Christ. He is speaking and will speak tomorrow through Christ to us. He will always speak back against the feeling of silence within the enduring context of his eternal kingship, his nature, and his character. And so the great mind of Francis Schaeffer could pen these words, he is there and he is not silent. God is not silent. He has not forgotten. God remembers, God looks, and God sees through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jerusalem began with an outcry, a plea in Lamentations 5. Remember, look and see. Through most of the poem, she cataloged the ways she felt neglected and forgotten and disgraced. She ends with one last plea, summarizing all of this. We can imagine her whole heart leaping from the last words of this book of poetry. Verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. It's an ending with incredible tension. See, the guiding message, or really the angst of this lament, has been one of remembrance. Lord, remember, look, and see our disgrace. And to remember is not just about knowing something, but about doing something. We finally see the specific request now for action. They want God to remember them in that they want God to restore and renew them. We called this series, this, this teaching from Lamentations, the entire series, Renew Our Days, because I think that's the basic and steady plea of the entire book. But the request for renewal is woven together with the request for restoration. We might say for their days to be renewed, they must first be restored. After all, the effect of sin is a fracturing of the covenant. 
Notice the city first asks to be restored directly to Yahweh. This is key. The greatest sorrow in all sorrows of lamentations and of all sorrows and every sin that we commit even to this day, the greatest sorrow is the loss of intimacy and relationship with God. That's what we learn in the feeling of God's silence. Sin steals from our union with him, our fellowship through the covenant. It is a betrayal of the vows of faithfulness and they are wounds that hijack our joy of relationship with God. See, when we feel God's silence, we are feeling a direct consequence of our sin, distance from him. Therefore, the request must be to ask for restoration and forgiveness because he is the offended party. We must be restored before we can be renewed. The gospel, the good news, my brothers and sisters, is that Jesus Christ has restored us to God. In Christ, we are fully remembered. We are looked at completely by God. We are known completely. We are seen completely by God. But it's not just that he knows us. See, in being seen by God, we become deeply connected and deeply dependent people who are loved by him. See, in Christ, we are forever remembered by an eternal God who sees us in our situation, who knows us in our situation, and then has done something to eternally save us from our situation. So, in Him, all of our lamentations will one day finally and completely be swallowed up in joy, be overwhelmed by the eternal sovereign lordship and power and glory of Jesus Christ. My brothers, my sisters, the promise whispered from lamentations is that in Christ, one day all shall be well. Because God has remembered his people. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you. We thank you that as we behold you and what you have done, particularly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are comforted in our sorrow. Things may not shift and change immediately, and yet there is something even in your silence that is knit back together when we behold Christ. We have not been forgotten. We have not been left. We have not been overlooked. We are seen. We are remembered. And you have done something on our behalf. You have loved us. May we believe that today. May we trust that today. May we worship you in accordance with that reality today. We ask in Jesus' powerful good name. Amen.